Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. This is episode, I believe, number 43, being recorded on Wednesday, September 8th, 2021. I, we do have a great show for you this week, and, you know, uh, I'm, seriously, we do have a very important show. I'm not just saying that to toot my own horn, horn. A lot of things to discuss could get a bit emotional at times, but, but you know, try to keep things light, but there are a lot of, really a lot of things to uh, discuss that are even of an emotional nature. First off, I hope you enjoyed your Labor Day holiday. And remember, that's not just a, you know, it's not just the last day of summer, uh, unofficially the last day of summer. It's an actual day that for laborers, people who work in, you know, steel mills or coal mines, I mean, people who just do a lot of difficult manual labor. And look, I'm not going to tell you that I know how it works. I'm not going to tell you that even uh, my immediate family or, or, or that a lot of my family knows how it works because I don't, I'm not digging at the coal mines, but I had family long before I was born working on the, the docks in Newark and uh, really doing a lot of manual labor that helped build this country. So it just takes some time to appreciate those people who do take a who really take a, a lot of physical toll in their work. Um, normally, I would be, I would have my, well, I do have my foot on a, a ta- resting on a table in front of me, a very nice wood table, but normally there are some old game rally towels and, you know, game programs, season programs that are on there, but at the moment, you have the bottom part of my old mattress for my for my apartment when I was in college, and that kind of shows kind of, kind of exemplifies everything that happened this week. So we need to talk a little bit about Hurricane Ida, even though it's not really a sports. Well, actually, I can tie it into sports a little bit, but. Hurricane Ida came roaring through, and I, be, I believe it was a tropical storm by the time it got here to New Jersey, fortunately, uh, but it, it really took a toll in terms of casualties, uh, damage, money that uh, we had to spend, and such an issue that the this mattress and pretty much everything in our, well, a lot of things in our basement are up on top of tables because we were afraid of flooding. When I was very young, when we first moved into this house, there was flooding and, you know, it's just kind of a, it's a, it's a frightening thing. We, I mean, I know people in the area who had water in their basement. Fortunately, we were spared uh, to the, to the best of my knowledge here. Fortunately, we were spared in terms of that, but Really, uh, this storm took a big toll on like a lot of people. I mean, geographically, this took this took a big toll on a lot of different people. So, it killed ninety seven people in total, sixty five directly, thirty two indirectly. Twenty of them in Louisiana. There have actually been twenty. Believe it or not, 
There were actually more people killed in New Jersey than there were in Louisiana. 27 people died here in New Jersey, 19 in New York State. There were a few in Pennsylvania, a few in Mississippi. And, I mean, this really impacted Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama a bit, Kentucky, I think West Virginia, kind of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and even up into New England, into Atlantic Canada as well. Um, so we have lost a lot of people. Fortunately, I don't, I, I don't know anyone personally who has passed from this, but basements and basement apartments were flooded here in the Northeast as much as $50 billion in total damage from Ida. There were also Louisiana residents who were hospitalized and killed due to carbon monoxide poisoning. That was one of the indirect deaths. A lot of, a lot of power outages. We lost our power. We didn't actually lose our power until the day after the storm really hit. It was kind of residual, and I think because of, because, uh, more because I think they were trying to just take out trees, or, or, or kind of uh, the, the power companies trying to clear out all these trees. But we weren't, I mean, we were hit relatively hard, but not nearly as bad as badly as the poor people in South Jersey. So Mullica Hill in particular, Edgewater Park, Burlington, it kind of west, kind of like southwest Jersey, close to Philadelphia. They really got hit hard with the waters coming in from the Delaware. Um, and most, believe it or not, mo well, actually it makes a lot of sense, but most of the deaths in New York City were people in basement apartments and uh, it, it's it's become a national thing now so i really wish everyone the best i really cannot wish you enough one interesting story that came out of this that is sports related is that john sterling who if you don't know you probably know him if you're from around from my area john sterling has been the radio voice of the new york yankees for oh god probably about 25 years 25 30 years something like that and for reasons that are still a little wild, even if the team, even if your team is on the road, if you're if you're covering a team, you still have to go into your home ballpark to cover the game for the most part. I know Gary Cohen and I think Ron Darling and Keith Hernandez. I think all of them finally went down to Washington D.C. to do a Mets at Nationals game, but so many times this year you've seen announcers in their own ballparks empty it's almost like the opening scene of Moneyball when Billy Bean's inside Oakland Alameda County Coliseum by himself watching the watching on like a I think it's like a transistor TV watching uh, the Yankees play the, the A's play the Yankees in game five of the ALDS 2001 in New York so pitch black stadium so anyway uh, John Sterling had to go to the stadium even though it was Gorgeous on the other side of the country. The Yankees were playing in Anaheim. It was horrible here. It was the night that, that everything really got hit. And so John Storling apparently lives in, I don't know, I'd have to narrow it down to probably Edgewater, West New York maybe, or, I don't know, Weehawken, somewhere around, somewhere around there, on, and probably somewhere on River Road. If you know, So if you know the area, River Road is on the other side of the Hudson River in New Jersey. It, it's a beautiful area. I'm, I'm down there a lot, take the ferry into the city from Weehawken a lot. And I, I, uh, some of my fan, I know people who used to live down there. So 
John Sterling, and I find this kind of cute, actually, that after all these years working together, he called Susan Waldman to try to get help. Susan Waldman is the uh, the color color commentator for the Yankee games, and and she got Ricky Ricardo, who is, I think, kind of the backup guy for Sterling on, a, on occasion, and he also does the Spanish-language broadcast. I believe he also actually does Philadelphia Eagles games, I believe. Anyway, Ricky Ricardo pretty much came in and rescued him after the game well after, well after 10 o'clock. I think this was, or well after 7 o'clock? No, it must have been 10 o'clock, because I think it was a 4 o'clock game West Coast time. 7 o'clock here, and Sterling's car was, like, trapped in floodwaters on River Road. River Road is a low... I, I There's not much separating it from the Hudson River. That's why it's called River Road, obviously. And it's a, a lot of filled-in land, so it's lower on the, the cliffs going along the Hudson River. It's kind of below the cliffs. So it can flood there fairly easily, Sterling was apparently stuck in a couple of feet. Ricky Ricardo got him out. They, I think, I, I think pushed the car like another half mile to his house. Unfortunately, he's okay. But it was uh, just something really, really fascinating. Um, you know, I actually pushed back the re- recording of this broadcast, rec- recording of this podcast, just because I really, not only because. It was important to this podcast, but also because I wanted to watch it. The Hall of Fame induction, the Baseball Hall of Fame induction ceremony, was at 1:30 Eastern Standard Time today. And so, for you know, I even though he went last, I'm going to do this in kind of reverse order. I'll talk about Derek Jeter first. Obviously, Derek Jeter was the highlight for many people of this Hall of Fame class. It was a primarily Yankee crowd, and that's also because of the the location of the Baseball Hall of Fame. But it also has a lot to do with Derek Jeter's impact, not just from a New York standpoint, but from a national standpoint, really from an international standpoint. The man was the face of the game for the majority of his career, really. I were one of the faces of the game. I'd say Ken Griffey Jr. is another one. Cal Ripken Jr. is another one. They're, they're kind of a select handful of guys who were really the face of baseball from late 90s and the first 10, 15 years of the 2000s. And, you know, listening to Jeter's speech really just epitomized his career. Class act, there is... I mean, for a guy who, you know, dealt with all that stuff in the tabloids for years in New York, there are very few athletes who have handled handled themselves better in the public eye, especially in this day and age, than Derek Jeter, so I, and really, if you watched his games over the years, even as early on as the very beginning of his career, you would see his parents in the stand for so long, so family oriented, and of course they, you know, they were almost they're almost like part of your own home when you watch when you see them for that long. Every time you'd see. His parents in a suite, in either downstairs or in a suite. You'd see his sister. Later on, you'd see his nephew, and uh, later now his uh, wife. Just every time you saw Derek Jeter play, the importance of family was so huge. And and not to mention the the speech itself, class act talking about really bridge the past to the present to the future. And he talked about first meeting Hank Aaron. 
at the, the 99 All-Star game where they rolled out Ted Williams at Fenway Park to, uh, to, to meeting Rachel Robinson. I mean, you talk about a guy who really honors the past of the game, talking about and then really finishing with the future and discussing and trying to remind the, the players who are there now to to keep the game to, to keep the game the way it is keep it intact and, and just really keep it a uh, a kid's game and then very kind to the entire Yankee Yankee organization George Steinbrenner still addresses him as Mr. Steinbrenner Joe Torre, all these people, his teammates, Mariano Rivera behind him, like Messina behind him, everybody. For God's sake, that's how wide an appeal this man has. He had Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, and CC Sabathia, and obviously CC Sabathia, it makes sense that he's there, but he had Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, and CC Sabathia sitting behind his parent, his parents and his family in like the second row, and they didn't even really, they didn't even really take up that, you know, they didn't steal the show or anything. Uh, re- really just a, a classy classy speech, and that's besides talking about what a great ball player he was, and I know, you know, it's funny, I saw something, I don't know who put it up, but some sports Twitter account, I think, made the suggestion, you know, since Derek Jeter's being inducted into the Hall of Fame today, why don't we talk about the the most overrated players of all time, any sport, and to an extent, I understand what they mean. But you also remember, yeah, Derek Jeter, I think they really say that because he's not a great power hitter. It was not a great, that's not even, to specify there, not a great home run hitter. Because he had over 500 doubles for his career, which is a pretty rare club. And and unless you have incredible speed on every attempt, you need a good amount of power to hit doubles. He's a guy who averaged only about 13 homers a year, but about twice as many doubles. So... And not to mention, he eight 200-hit seasons, I think 13 100-run seasons, averaged about like 95, over 95 runs a year, uh, 310 career hitter, which is something you do not see anymore. You do not see a lot of guys who average over 300, even uh, like very, very few. And even for his low, relatively low power stats, 200, 260 home runs, I think, 1,300-something RBIs. First off, incredible fielder. Uh, very good base stealer, over 350 steals, something like that. And for low power numbers, great power hitter in the postseason. I think he's like top 10, top 5 in terms of playoff homers. Now, obviously, that comes a lot because of volume, but you have to get there in ter- that many times in order to have such a volume. Again, Jeter, surrounded by a number of players, he I, I wouldn't say he he could carry the organization to the extent that you know Babe Ruth at times could, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, but this guy's a top, uh, probably a top like six or seven player in the history of the franchise, and probably a top I'd say the third best shortstop of all time. I'd only put Cal Ripken Jr. and Honus Wagner in front of him, not in, in reverse order. So, really, a class act and the the face of a generation of baseball, really, from the, the flip to the Mr. November home run, the 
diving play into the stands against the Red Sox, against Trot Nixon, the diving play into the stands against the A's, you know, the leadoff homer against the, the Mets in the World Series. The, the, you cannot say enough about Derek Jeter, seriously. But eventually we have to move on, and we do have to move on to Larry Walker, who probably did not get as much credit as he should. We all know Derek Jeter, first ballot Hall of Famer. But Larry Walker, this guy who took too, really took too long to get in, a great pure hitter, was unfairly characterized by the fact he played in Denver for so many years and maybe his power numbers were manipulated as opposed to other ballparks. But still, nearly 400 homers for his career. A great pure hitter. So a great pure hitter. I, I'm trying He his batting at trying to remember what his batting average was. It was, it was definitely better than Jeter's. It was like 313, I think. And a great all-around ball player. His 97 season with the Rockies was insane. One of the biggest things, first ever player to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame as a member of the Colorado Rockies, which is very much something. I think Todd Helton should get in. I think he, I, I hope he does. I think he's deserving of it. And hopefully his numbers spike in the next few years. But Larry Walker, great four-tool player at least. Excellent power hitter. Excellent pure hitter. Great base runner. I mean, for his size, Harold Reynolds brought it up during the, the MLB Network broadcast, 6'5", 215. And then I realized you combine that with, I'm pretty sure he stole over 300 bases for his career. And I want to say he's, I think he was 30-30 club for that 97 season, at least. And even though it was for a Rockies team that didn't succeed that much, Again, I you know we, we kind of saw this with Andre Dawson, one of his Expos teammates, who actually you know what Dawson might have been a little ahead of him, but Andre Dawson, another member of the Expos who went to the Hall of Fame as an Expo, I believe, I believe it was as as an Expo, not as a Cub, but that's a guy who won NL MVP with a last place team with the Cubs. So Walker did so much in Montreal. I mean, you talk about what the the Expos and Rockies also could have done if not for that 19... I think it was the, he was still with the Expos, that 1994 season when the strike cut it short and the Expos were the best team in baseball. Maybe the Expos, ne- maybe the Expos win the World Series. Maybe they never move to Washington. And maybe Larry Walker spends his career in his home country. By the way... Larry Walker, only the second ever Canadian player inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, the other being Fergie Jenkins. Also a great moment in his speech when, when Walker talked about putting up the hashtag Fergie needs a friend one year when he was still yet to be inducted. So, And then Larry Walker finally got to the World Series, didn't win, but finally got to the World Series in 2004 with the Cardinals. And an organization that really showed up for him in a year and a half there to finish his career. So another guy who is very well-deserving, speaking of which, Ted Simmons, who, by the way, Ted Simmons, I didn't even realize, sounds, am I wrong? Ted Simmons kind of sounds like Morgan Freeman. That's that's what I heard. That's what I heard when he was talking. I don't think I'd ever... As you know, Derek Jeter's voice you probably heard. You probably heard Larry Walker's voice. You may have heard 
Ted Sim- I did not realize Ted Simmons seriously. Listen closely. He kind of sound he sounds a good amount like Morgan Freeman. But that's besides the point. Ted Simmons, the guy who uh, who played for 21 years, was one of the premier power hitting catchers. 13 years with the St. Louis Cardinals. A number of years, I think about six, five or six with the with the Milwaukee Brewers. About two or three with the Braves. Was never won the World Series. Actually, he. Only played two games for that Cardinals team that won the pennant in 68. But was a key piece of some very good Cardinals teams in the late 60s, early, all the way through the 70s. And was very important to the Milwaukee Brewers and helping guide them to their first World Series appearance in 1982. Still their only to this point. A clutch power-hitting, switch-hitting catcher, and a guy who is probably very undervalued for his time. Seriously, you look at his hits. I think he has over 2,400 hits, which is rare for just in Major League history in general, but for a catcher, that's pretty rare. Over 2,400 hits. He's really a solid power-hitter. was able to nab people on the bases. Ferocious. And, and judging by his speech, very intelligent, very well-spoken, and very knowledgeable about the game. And one thing I really wanted to take from his speech the most was the future of the game and how, now that I think about it, it's almost reminiscent of James Earl Jones' speech in Field of Dreams. You know, it's been, baseball has been rolled on like an army of steamrollers been written, erased, and it's been erased, written, and erased again. And Ted Simmons pretty much said, you know, someday there is going to be, we talk about a lot of power hitters, but someday there is going to be another George Brett. He'll hit 360 for the season. He'll hit 40 home runs, he'll have 160 RBIs, he'll have 100 walks, he'll only strike out 75 times, and the game will readjust. And I think probably because of that, that he, he got great applause from, from the crowd. A very nice crowd, by the way. Lovely to see since it is the first Hall of Fame ceremony since the pandemic, baseball Hall of Fame ceremony since the pandemic. But I think Ted Simmons kind of reflected what we all want to see in baseball, and that is nostalgia. Nostalgia, and you love seeing the things the way they were when you were a kid and seeing the game played the right way. So I thought that was very promising and very, a very thoughtful speech from, from, from Ted Simmons. So that's it for the players, but Marvin Miller was inducted. If you do not know Marvin Miller, he played perhaps as crucial a role in the history of the game as anyone who was actually on that stage. Marvin Miller passed away in 2012. He was well into his 90s, and this this was another one. I think Larry Walker was overdue. This guy was overdue to be in the Hall of Fame. He was the head of the MLB Players Association from 1966 through 1982. Was vital in instituting free agency. That's that's one of his one of his biggest achievements is helping create free agency 
And while some ball players may get, yeah, frankly, some ball players may get overpaid. Some ball players may get a little greedy. You may see, and it's kind of the truth is he kind of instituted this for all of sports too. When you see somebody get paid 35, 40, 45, 50, even 50 now million dollars, not just in the MLB, but in any sport a year, you almost think that's ridiculous. You don't deserve that much. And yeah, a lot of these guys, it's fair, but think about the guys who are at the bottom. Tim McCarver was, it was Tim McCarver and Ted Simmons who did this very nice video introduction for Marvin Miller. And I was astonished when I heard Tim McCarver say that the minimum MLB salary was, I thought he said $6,000 when Marvin Miller came in. Now, if you've ever seen the movie, I'd have to verify that somehow, but if you've ever seen the movie Eight Men Out, first off, if you haven't, go see it, it watch it. It's a great movie. It's about the, the Black Sox scandal of 1919. And the thing is, the Black Sox scandal where these where eight players from the White Sox, really it was probably six, Buck Weaver and, jo- and Shoeless Joe Jackson, I think were unfairly charged and, and thrown out of the game, through the World Series and lost on purpose against the Cincinnati Reds, even though this was a team that was one of the best ever. And part of, the, the movie shows that part of that was the greed of Charles Comiskey in particular. Now, how historically accurate this film is, I believe it's pretty historically accurate. I don't I don't know if everything is is true, but there's a scene where they've won the American League pennant, the White Sox, and they're going to open the champagne and it's Comiskey's like assistant and they ask him, you know, where where's our bonus for winning the for winning the pennant? He says this in this is your bonus. And then they open the champagne, and it's flat. It's flat. It's it's expired. And even then, these guys were getting paid six thousand. Then this is over a hundred years ago, when like ten thousand was a standard salary. So if you're getting paid six thousand dollars in the you know the sixties, even for the amount of inflation that's happened in the fifty some odd years since then. That's a ridiculous salary. So just think about that. Think about those guys. Think about the guys who are making, you know, a few who are making the league minimum and they're making a few hundred thousand dollars a year to play, you know, play off the bench or even on a minor league contract. Think about those guys when you think about Marvin Miller. Because for so many years, ball play, even the best baseball players would have to take second jobs during the offseason. So many of them. And I mean, a lot of them were, were smart and got endorsements and invested. But even then, a lot of these guys had to, had to, had second jobs. Talk about uh, in, investments and endorsements, things like that. Yoki Berra and I think Whitey Ford and Mickey Mantle, maybe, were the ones who helped start Yoohoo. Yoohoo, great chocolate milk company. That's Yoohoo, that's Yogi Berra. So these guys had to be more entrepreneurs during the offseason. They had to do a lot more during the offseason, even though they were risk on, risking a lot by playing, risking injury. And, you know, I mean, not, not spending more time away from home. 
So Marvin Miller really is should be owed a lot more for what he did for the history of this game and what he did for players. And I know there were a couple more. I, I'm not really going to bring up the, the J.G. Taylor Spink winners over the last two years. That's for best baseball writing. But I know Hawk Harrelson won the... I think I think it was last year, that 2020, that Ken Hawk Harrelson won the... Um, uh, the Ford C. Frick Award for for contributions in broadcasting to the game of baseball. And a kudos to him because he was certainly entertaining, especially if you're a White Sox fan. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, a bit of a homer, but that, that's a guy you love in Chicago. And the man who was honored, I believe it was this year as opposed to last year, and I wish the MLB Network had kind of stayed on that so I could watch, was Al Michaels. Now, you may think, if you're young enough, you may think, Al Michaels, he's done Sunday night football for so many years, and that's true. And he's a great football announcer. He may be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame already. I'm not sure. He certainly will be. You probably think Al Michaels did the miracle on ice. Yeah, that's true. Al Michaels did the NBA Finals. Yeah, that's also true. But for many years, Al Michaels was, even though he hasn't done it in recent years, Al Michaels was a great baseball broadcaster with ABC and, I could be wrong, I want to, I, I want to say he did some baseball work with NBC as well. A lot of great calls. He worked in, I think, Cincinnati. I know he worked when the Reds were really good with a big red machine in the 70s. And really was an influential broadcaster, very knowledgeable, very intense, and brought so much to the game over, God, 25, 30, God knows how many years broadcasting. So I, I'm, and of course, I am a huge fan of Al Michaels, so I, especially where I want to be, so I am. Uh, grateful and, and glad to see that that he has gotten in. One thing that was pretty a uh, pretty tough pill to swallow. It's been over two years since the last Hall of Fame ceremony, so the in memoriam. Uh, it comes all it all comes back to you that we lost ten Hall of Famers, and not even over the spread out over the course of two years, we lost ten Hall of Famers in the span of like a year. Lost most of these guys in the span of a couple of months, and really, this was big. Johnny Bench was the narrator, and MLB Productions put together this whole thing for all these Hall of Famers. And these weren't even; these were all big name guys, big name guys, huge Hall of Famers. You talk about Tom Seaver who we lost, a lot of these guys we really lost too soon. But uh, Tom Seaver, arguably, you can make the argument a top five pitcher in the history of the game. In terms of pitching war, I think he's like sixth all time and probably has, he's probably the best pitcher since the beginning of World War II meant so much to the Mets organization, um, 
clutch as anyone, intelligent as anyone, methodical. Over 300 wins, over, I think he's over 4,000 strikeouts. Definitely over 3,000. Threw a no-hitter. One of only two Mets to be, one of only two players to be inducted into the Hall of Fame as a Met. You can't, uh, can't say enough about Tom Seaver. Don Sutton. Don Sutton, who pitched for many years for the Dodgers, worked as a broadcaster, was beloved by Dodgers, the Angels, worked as a broadcaster for the Braves for many years. Another guy we lost to. So 324 wins for his career. Lou Brock, who is one of the... Uh, for, uh, until Ricky Henderson broke his record, Lou Brock was the greatest base stealer ever. Not to mention, he has over 3,000 hits, uh, hit nearly 400 in the World Series, in three World Series appearances, won two of them, all of them seven-game championship rounds. And one of the biggest swindles in history, the Cardinals got him from the Cubs. Just a permanent smile on that on that man's face, beloved. As was his teammate, Bob Gibson. One of the best pitchers of the last half century. The man struck out six. The man had a 1.12 ERA in 1968. He's the reason they lowered the pitching mound. Seriously, this man instituted years of changes for the MLB in order to support their offense because he was that good in 1968. A 1.12 ERA, a modern era low. 17 strikeouts in Game 1 of the World Series against the Tigers. Still a World Series record. Two-time World Series MVP. There are only three players in the history of the game to win World Series MVP twice. It's Reggie Jackson, Bob Gibson, and Sandy Koufax. That's a ridiculous trio. Now, to be fair, that's also because the, the World Series MVP wasn't founded until 1955. But that is so remarkable for, uh, to, for you to win two championships in your career and, as a pitcher, win World Series MVP in both of them. Was the World Series winning pitcher in Game 7 in 1964 and 1967 against the Yankees and Red Sox, respectively. Pushed the Detroit Tigers to the limit in 68. I think he actually hit a home run at Fenway Park in Game 7 of the 67 series. Just a remarkable pitcher. Tommy Lasorda. Tommy Lasorda, who was into his late 80s, I believe. It was lovely to see... I. The, I, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was after, it was before he passed that the Dodgers won the World Series for the first time since he led the team to a championship in 1988. When you think of the 88 Dodgers, you, you probably think of Kirk Gibson, but you forget that they really rode the coattails of Oral Hershiser, an outstanding performance in the NLCS against a, a Mets team that was probably better, and a World Series in which Oakland was probably a better team, even with the, you know, alleged enhancements of Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire. They still had Dennis Eckersley, Hall of Fame, Ricky Henderson, greatest base stealer ever. You have uh, uh, Dave Stewart, one of the great clutch pitchers of the last 30 years. Carney Lansford, a remarkable team. And then I think Dave Parker was there at that point. I, a lot of great ball players. So for Lasorda to manage that team, I mean, there's the line. Bob Costas said, I think before Game One of the '88 series, he said this is this may be one of the worst fielded lineups 
in World Series history. And Tommy Lasorda managed that team to a World Championship. He also managed the 81 Dodgers to a World Championship. They stunned the Yankees after losing to them in 77 and 78. Led the Dodgers to, to such successes. He'd been with the organization for about 70 years. I mean, Tommy Lasorda and Vin Scully were the two constants for the last 70 years for the Dodger organization. From Brooklyn to Los Angeles, from Duke Snyder to Clayton Kershaw. Remarkable, remarkable career. And let's also remember, he's the one, he's the reason Mike Piazza got drafted. Mike Piazza, Mike Piazza, I think, I think Mike Piazza's dad was a family friend of Lasorda, who was from New York, by the way. I think, yeah, Piazza was living in Norristown, Pennsylvania, close to Philly. They picked him in the 62nd round in 19... God, I forget what year. But the point is, he came up with the Dodgers, spent the like, first four and a half years of his career with the Dodgers, I believe with Lasorda as his manager. Eventually spent like a few days with the Marlins. The bulk of his career with the Mets, and that's where you have it. We'll talk more, a little more about Mike Piazza later on, actually. Hank Aaron. Who doesn't love Hank Aaron? I'm, I'm, and unfortunately, the answer is perhaps the, the there are probably a handful of people still alive who uh, unfortunately were wrote death threats to Hank Aaron when he was chasing Babe Ruth's home run record. But, I mean, that's how beloved the man is. The man fought through all of that. Seriously, was a... We talk about Jackie Robinson being the first player to break the color barrier. We talk about Larry. Not enough people talk about Larry Doby shortly thereafter. People talk about Frank Robinson being the first African-American manager. And you know, not a lot of people talk about Hank Aaron being the civil rights icon that he is. There's the great quote from Vince Scully. Well, look at this. A, a black man is being applauded in the deep South for breaking the record of an all-time great. Hank Aaron was in Atlanta, Georgia, a city with Historic, that has historically been the, the subject of a lot of racial tension. He broke a record that everyone thought unbreakable. Let's face it, Hank Aaron is still the greatest home run hitter of all time, no matter what the score sheet may say. All-time leader in home runs, really. All-time leader in RBIs, for sure. I think he's third in hits. A lot of people forget that. Great all-around ball player. Some, that's how consistent he was. Never hit 50 home runs. And through all the, the, the scrutiny and all the, the death threats, or even uh, to a far lesser extent later on when Bonds was breaking his record, never acted with anything but class. And I, there are a few players in the history of, the, of, of sports that are probably as beloved as Hank Aaron. Al Kaline, underrated ball player, 399 homers for his career, probably Mr. Tiger, over 3,000 hits, Finally, after I think 17 years, won the World Series with the Tigers in 1968. Was uh, uh, and again, Ty Cobb is probably the best player ever to put on the Tiger uniform. But Al Kaline spent his entire I think 23 year career with the Tigers, and was I'm pretty sure a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, very few as as beloved as Al Kaline in the city of Detroit. He's up. He's up there with, with Gordie Howe, with Barry Sanders, Bobby Lane, Isaiah Thomas, all those guys. Uh, Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan, who I grew up with watching him on Sunday Night Baseball. And I think he was 
a guy who probably should have been there even longer than he was, great color commentator for ESPN and also for, for NBC. I didn't realize when I was much younger he did work with NBC with Bob, Bob Costas and, and Bob Euchre in particular, I believe. But this guy was one of the greatest second base, one of, if not the greatest second baseman ever. You forget, you know, Pete Rose, obviously, Pete Rose, most hits of any player ever in the MLB. Each row technically has the most. But Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan are the only players from the Big Red Machine to win multiple MVP awards. And Morgan won it in consecutive years, and I'm pretty sure it was, yeah, 75 and 76, it was the years they actually won the World Series. Great power hitter. And then he, then he went on to the Phillies. He went with Pete Rose. He went to the Phillies and won, won another World Series. I think, Or no, I take it back. He was there for the 83 team, I believe. But played such a crucial role in the history of the game. Kind of reinvented the, the second base position and added some pop to it. Great all-around player. Phil Necro, probably the greatest knuckleballer ever. With all due respect to Tim Wakefield, but Phil Phil Necro is in the and R.A. Dickey, I think too. But Phil Necro is in the Hall of Fame. I'm pretty sure 300 game winner was crucial to the Braves organization. Was I think with the Blue Jays and the and the Yankees a little later on, just an outstanding player. And lastly, Whitey Ford, Whitey Ford, who some people may not appreciate enough because. He had Mickey Mantle behind him. He, had, he was throwing to Yogi Berra. He had, I think, well, Joe DiMaggio behind him for a little while. Phil Rizzuto. Because the Yankees team was, uh, Casey Stengel managing, because the Yankee team was so good. People forget he has, despite not winning 300 games, he has one of the best winning percentages ever. I believe he actually missed some time in the early on in his career. I believe... I could be wrong, but I believe due to Korean War service, which, if not, maybe he gets up to 300 wins, broke Babe Ruth's record for for consecutive scoreless innings in a World Series. Uh, and uh, one of the best postseason pitchers ever. One of the best overall pitchers ever, one of the best postseason pitchers ever. And got to be the greatest pitcher in the history of the most successful franchise in sports. So the fact that we lost all of these guys over two years was a real shame, but we'll, we will continue to remember them. So, and again, I haven't really even gotten into a rundown, which I'll, I usually do. But, so what I have from here, I do want to talk a little bit about someone who is not necessarily sports-related, but is someone who was very involved with broadcasting. I put a smile on a lot of people's faces. That is Willard Scott. Willard Scott, if you don't know, passed away at the age of 87 earlier this month, was the weatherman for the Today Show for 16 years, full-time, from 1980 through 1986, and he worked kind of as a fill-in and a part-time guy as late as 2015. So, and I'll tell you, if you appreciate kind of the, kind of Al Roker now, i Definitely think you'd appreciate Willard Scott because he was not just a weatherman. He was just someone made people happy. If you don't realize, Willard Scott was actually Bozo the Clown in Washington, D.C. If you don't know Bozo the Clown, Bozo the Clown was a 
great character, not just for, it wasn't just one single person. Bozo the Clown, I didn't realize this for a while, but Bozo the Clown was in a number of different cities, mainly in, like Chicago was one of the big ones, but Willard Scott was Bozo the Clown from 1959 through 1962. He was the Washington, D.C. Bozo the Clown. So Bozo was probably the preeminent television clown, just made just enriched the lives of a lot of kids. There were a, a number of different actors who played Bozo, and I don't remember exactly which one I watched, but when I was a, a little boy, I watched Bozo, and that's how far this thing goes, because I'm relatively young. I was born in the late 90s, and Bozo stretches back to like the late 40s, early 50s. So, uh, uh, Willard Scott, by the way, also, he helped create Ronald McDonald and was also the first Ronald McDonald. And I know some people say, you know, there's, that, there's this kind of cynical thing where people are afraid of clowns, and I will say because of it, I don't really blame you. Excellent film. I haven't seen the original, but I, but the, the the new one with Bill Skarsgård is great. Uh, but it, it's just one of those things that makes a lot of people happy. And Willard Scott was one of those people. Makes a lot, made a lot of kids happy. Willard Scott, if you're also a regular, regular viewer of the Today Show, Willard Scott was one of, I believe, the person who originated the segment they have that for, for many years has been sponsored by Smuckers uh, about centenarians, where they, they wish happy birthday to people of a hundred years or older. Uh, that's, uh, I don't remember, it might have been a weekly thing, I don't remember, and uh, Al Rokel, Al, Al Rokel, Al Roker paid tribute to him and actually said that behind the scenes he did a lot of work with senior citizens over the course of his career. So, uh, Willard Scott, really, at, at age 87, someone who just made and, uh, yeah, weatherman, but someone who just made and w will continue to make people happy. So I just want to pay tribute to him. Um, one more just pretty emotional thing that I, I do actually want to discuss, and it's probably as emotional as any, and that is that this Saturday will mark 20 years since the September 11th attacks. So uh, I was only three years old when, when the attacks took place. I don't remember. I don't re remember anything from that time. But I will say in... I didn't really probably know what 9-11... Look, I probably had some idea what 9-11 was. I don't think I really truly know, knew what it was until I was taught it, taught about it in probably my 8th grade social studies class. Which was, strangely enough, was probably about the same time the few months before and, and going into um, when the Navy SEALs took out Osama bin Laden. Strangely enough, it's been 10 years. And it, this kind of coincides with, I know there's been a lot of controversy with it about the, the handling of it, but we finally get out of Afghanistan 20 years after the attacks, 10 years after taking out Osama bin Laden. Um, I, I will say... I, again, I don't 
remember the attacks. I don't have any, any memory. Because I was only three years old. But uh, And I, I was fortunate enough that we didn't lose anyone personally. Nobody I, I really knew closely that we lost. But there's been a, a significant impact from it. I had... Uh, for my parents' anniversary is you know close to that time, and they were uh, my, like seriously. September is a weird month for us. We have probably more sell either more family events, more significant life events, good or bad, in September than we do in any other month. Um, I had a, a I won't say who I had a family member born in Manhattan the day of Mike Piazza's home run against the Braves. The exact day, September 21st, 2001. It was the first game in New York City since the attacks. And that's pr- actually, that's that's part of why uh, the Jeter's Mr. November home run, the sports world just kind of closed down for 10 days. So September 21st, 2001, I had a family member, I won't, go into too much detail, born in Manhattan. And meanwhile, the fumes were still going in lower Manhattan. And uh, so that night, the Mets played the Atlanta Braves in the first... in the first sporting event since the September 11th attacks. So if you don't know, the the Mets, who would go on to miss the playoffs, and the Braves, who would go on to win the division, the the Mets trailed 2-1 in the 8th inning. Mike Piazza, now a Hall of Famer, came to the plate and crushed a two-run home run to put the Mets in front 3-2. That was the final score. And though it didn't really mean anything from a from a baseball standpoint, it won the game, helped win the game, but the Mets didn't get to the playoffs. I would argue that with the possible exceptions of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier and the Miracle on Ice, that this is the most important moment, most important transcendent moment in the history of American sports. I've mentioned multiple times on this podcast how much of a healing impact sports can have on society from, I mean, we talked about with, you know, the Yankees after 9-11 and their run against the Diamondbacks, from... Boston in 2013 after the marathon from the Red Sox winning the World Series, the Bruins reaching the final. Detroit, the riots in 68, and the Tigers winning the World Series. Sports can really be a healing thing for a community. And while America was reeling entirely, uh, this was a healing thing 
not just for the city of New York. This was a healing thing for the entire country. I cannot emphasize enough how important I would say that home run was just to getting to normalcy, trying to, trying to get back to some sort of normalcy, which is something that I think we've tried, we've seen this last year and a half. A, a devastating blow from the pandemic and just trying to get back to normalcy. So... That's 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 just where I I stand on that. That's that's my personal experience. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll breathe, and then uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Mark Andrews getting an extension with the Ravens, and I will make my predictions for the entire NFL season in terms of standings and postseason. That is when we come back here on Sports in the Waiting Room. All right, we are back here on Sports in the Waiting Room, and now it is time for NFL predictions this year. Highly anticipated NFL season. Actually, before we get to that, let's just talk briefly about Mark Andrews. Mark Andrews signs a four-year, $56 million extension with the Ravens, $14 million a year. Was actually uh, falsely reported for a brief time to be the highest paid, to make him the highest paid contract, the highest paid tight end in the NFL. It's not true. He's the third highest paid tight end behind George Kill and Travis Kelsey, respectively. Those two guys, obviously the best, both 1,000-yard seasons. They're both the, the number one, not just the number one tight end, but the number one option offensively for their respective teams. And while I'd say Lamar Jackson is probably actually the biggest overall offensive weapon for the Ravens, Mark Andrews has averaged over 700 yards a year in his time with the Ravens is probably their number one receiving threat for a team that is a lot more predicated on the run game. But I think you could kind of say that about San Francisco, too. They're a, very ba- they're a more balanced team. So if, if you're going to spend... Obviously, the Ravens don't spend too much, I think, on their well, uh, on their receivers, I'd say. So I, if anyone deserves it, it would probably be Mark Andrews. But it's all about securing the core... And it's something they could afford to do more so when they traded Orlando Brown to the Chiefs. The the question is how much they are going to utilize him. You would hope if you're a Ravens fan. The Ravens fan, if you're a Ravens fan, I think you need to improve the passing game a little more. Because Lamar Jackson, obviously a great quarterback, MVP in this league. But I think he's probably known a little more as a runner than as a passer. So I think that's, that's where they need the most improvement. So, NFL predictions. Start with the AFC, then the NFC. We'll go division by division. And you know what? Let's go fourth to first in the division. So we'll start with the AFC North. Cincinnati Bengals finished last in the division at 4-13. and 13. Remember, they go to 17 games this season. Bengals got T. Higgins, but they didn't really address their biggest need, which was the offensive line. And when Joe Burrow is done for the year that early on in his rookie year, that's your biggest problem. Uh, I did this all with the whole, I think, that playoff predictor website, by the way. So, uh, third, the Steelers go 8-9. and nine. Steelers, obviously, a very, very strange offseason. Almost a little surprising that Ben Roethlisberger is returning. Not, uh, it, the offensive line struggles. It, it, a lot of different things happening. And then Cleveland is only getting so much better. So, the Steelers go 8-9 and nine and miss the playoffs. Second 
in the AFC North. As good as they are, Baltimore Ravens will finish second in the AFC North. They'll go 11-6. I have them getting in as the five seed. I think they made some improvements over last year. But, uh, again, Cleveland Browns are the team to beat in the AFC North. And I think one of the teams to beat in football this year. They only improved a very dangerous offensive line. And they don't really have many weak spots. I would say they are, while maybe not the best team in football, probably the most complete team in the NFL. I have them going 13-4 and four and finishing with a three seed. AFC South. Um, this one surprised me a little bit. Um, first off, I have, the Tex- I have the Texans actually going 0-16. And I don't know if I'm just saying that because maybe that's just subconsciously Deshaun Watson should probably not be on a football field. But the, the Texans have just a lot going wrong with them despite a Jaguars team that's really going to struggle in Trevor Lawrence's rookie year, not because of Trevor Lawrence, but in the in his rookie year, I still say the Texans are not only going to finish last in the AFC South, last in the AFC, I think they're actually going to lose every game they play. That's probably a very, very conservative estimate for their, in terms of number of wins, but odds are they'll probably win at least a couple of games, and they might prove me, they might be a very pleasant surprise, but for now, I say 0-16. Jaguars finish third at 2-14. Makes a lot of sense. Give Trevor Lawrence some time to develop. Travis Etienne done for the year. That's pretty tough, despite having still a pretty good, couple of pretty good running backs on the roster. That's where I stand. Second, Indianapolis Colts. Indianapolis Colts go 10-7. I might have said a, a couple of months ago that the Colts would be the team to beat in the AFC South. But even though it looks like he's actually going, he's going to be way ahead of schedule. Carson Wentz it still cannot possibly be at 100%. Quentin Nelson is not back. He is the core of their offensive line, and I, that's why I say 10 and seven. I, I, look, if if Wentz really is a, a lot healthier than I think he is, then they they might win the division. Very well could win the division, but I say ten and seven at this point. I say they finish with the sixth seed. And the winner of the AFC South, Tennessee Titans, probably the most complete team in that division. Ryan Tannehill, good game manager. They bring in Julio Jones as sort of a complimentary receiver, really at this point. But that makes that team a lot more dangerous. Derrick Henry in the offensive line. If you're a Titans fan, hopefully, hopefully regain their form after a very tough game to watch against the Ravens in the postseason. Titans go 12-5, and finish with a four seed. AFC East. This is going to be very surprising. And this is going to be very surprising for a lot of people. I do have the Jets finishing last in the division. But I actually have the New York Jets winning eight games. I know, I know, it's ridiculous. It's also a little different because remember, it's that would still give them a losing record. This year, it would be 8-9, and nine, but I have the Jets going 8-9. and nine. I know. I figure maybe with the inexperience of the Patriots and Mac Jones, not the Patriots in general, but Mac Jones, and maybe with the kind of lack of confidence with the Dolphins, they might win a couple of games in that division. Their schedule is not terrible, and 
I know Carl Lawson had a lot of high hopes, but they brought in Zach Wilson. They brought the most important thing for me was more than Wilson. I think was bringing in Robert Sala for a total culture change, and I think this team is going to be as well as as it has been coached since probably since Rex Ryan was there. I'd probably say it's probably been a decade since they've had a coach this good. I liked some of the things that Todd Bowles did, but Rex Ryan was probably the last coach who could really change the culture this much and was smart enough to, to run this organization. They have Wilson. They have, I will say, they have one of the, maybe not one of the best, or maybe not one of the top guys, they have one of the deeper receiving cores in football. Believe it or not, looked at Corey Davis, Keelan Cole, still have Crowder. No, or I take it back. Well, but look, they have a lot of at least decent receivers, and they improve the line a little bit. They improve the offensive line. So that that was a big need. So Jets might not be bad. Jets might not be that bad. That's that's just what I'm throwing out. Miami Dolphins, meanwhile, that's a team that frankly maybe could win a number of other divisions. I have them going eight and nine as well, but getting the tiebreaker and finishing in third. I, I think it's just the cynic in me from hearing all the bad mouthing of Tua Tugavailoa in his first year that made me pick them at, to go eight and nine, as opposed to maybe nine and eight, ten and seven. Uh, but I, I don't know. I like what they're doing with their culture, with their roster. I like the, I like what Brian Flores is doing, and I think we saw that not only last year, but the year before, with just the very end of that season and that big win in New England that helped Kansas City secure the first round bye, I think that's the, that was the start of it. But I say the Dolphins go eight and nine. That that cynicism got to me just a little bit. Um, Buffalo Bills. Oh, well, hold on. New England Patriots. I take it back. New England Patriots go nine and eight, finish second in the AFC East. Good start for Mac Jones. It's the same. Th- it's look. It's essentially the same skill set as Tom Brady. I'm not going to say he's as good as Tom Brady, but a very similar skill set in that he's a game manager. He can control the football. He can hold on to the football. He's got some good running backs. He's got Bill Belichick, one of the greatest coaches in the history of the game, on the sideline, and he's going to have a strong defense. Not to mention Belichick has spent money significantly for the first time in God knows, maybe ever. Um, so Patriots go nine and eight. I do have them missing the playoffs, but they will be very good very quickly, I think. And lastly, the Buffalo Bills. Um, Kansas, Kansas City might be the best team in the NFL, but I don't know what it is about Buffalo that made me pick them to go 16 and one. It's got to be Josh Allen. Uh, that Josh Allen, I think, is going to have a meteoric rise this year from last year after leading the Bills to the AFC Championship game. And I think home field is going to mean a lot to Buffalo fans this year. I, I, I don't know. I have a really I have a really strong feeling about the Buffalo Bills this year. I have a very strong feeling about what the Buffalo Bills can do this year. Moving on to the AFC West from bottom to top, we begin... And, you know, it's pretty strange because I had them losing a lot of games early and winning most of their games later on in the season. I think it was, I I didn't even realize 
that they – I think I had them starting like 0-7 or something like that, which doesn't really make much sense because I think they're a pretty good team. But I had the Chargers going 5-12 and and finishing last in the AFC West. I believe that is an improvement over last year, and they will have Justin Herbert there, but that, I think that is an underrated division. I think I, Again, Kansas City, far and away the best team in that division, but I think the Raiders and the Broncos are pretty underrated and it makes the interdivisional matchups a lot tougher. So I think the Chargers actually go Chargers actually go five and twelve. Raiders I don't think get as much credit as they should, but it's again it's not that strong a defense. I have them going seven and ten, about the same as as what they were last year, roughly I believe. Broncos I have taking a step up because they I think you know not a, a lot of people appreciate this and it's an older guy, but I think they made, I think they they took a step forward at quarterback. Whether Teddy Bridgewater is the long-term solution, I don't know. He's got some mileage on him already. But I would take Teddy Bridgewater over Drew Locke for sure. He's got, and not to mention, he's got the weapons. Uh, So it's been a couple of years already for Locke. I don't think he's the guy. Teddy Bridgewater, people forget that before Teddy Bridgewater got hurt, he was a very good quarterback. And then he was just unfortunately, due to timing, just relegated to backup roles. I think Denver can win some games. I have Denver going 10-7 and seven and actually getting in as the seventh seed. Number one, obviously, Kansas City Chiefs, two-time defending AFC champions, Super Bowl champions two years ago. I have, the going, I have them going 14-3. and three. I feel like maybe there could be a couple of upsets this year. I have them getting the number two seed, which... Does not mean as much anymore now that there is the seventh seed. So Kansas City going fourteen and three, winning the West. They they upgraded abs- the only place they needed to upgrade, and that is offensive line because poor Patrick Mahomes was running all over the place during the Super Bowl. That that is the one. That is the one downside of that team last year. It's the O line, and they improved it. So Kansas City getting the two seed. Moving to the NFC, starting with the NFC North. I think Jared Goff is bad-mouthed a bit too much, but the Detroit Lions are still, relatively speaking, in shambles. I don't think they got maybe as much on that return as they could have, and they are definitely not poised for a playoff spot anytime soon. I have them going 3-14. and 14. That is tied for the worst in the NFC. Chicago Bears, I have finishing third, going eight and nine. And just based on the way I actually lined things up, that actually puts them in the seventh seed. The and I don't know I don't know how long if it happens this year it takes for Justin Fields to get the starting job. But I if I were a Bears fan, I'd be perfectly fine with Andy Dalton. Not thrilled, but fine. He's a good game manager. He did some good things with even with Dallas last year because Dak Prescott was putting up career numbers and still not doing anything because of that defense. And Dalton managed, Dalton managed, and even kept them in the the hunt for the division for a little while. And, and even, even he got hurt. That was the big problem. The the bigger problem was Ben DiNucci as opposed to Andy Dalton. Dalton was fine. Dalton seriously was fine. So Bears. Eight and nine, they sneak in. Minnesota Vikings. I have going nine and eight. Kirk Cousins had a 
a, very quietly a great year last year. But the issue was the defense. They could not... It, they had one of their best offensive years ever and one of their worst defensive years ever. But I think the Vikings made enough improvements that they have gained a little more confidence and they go to 9-8. and eight. That would make them the sixth seed. And of course, by process of elimination, Green Bay Packers finish at 14-3. and three. I know there are some question marks, especially because this is probably going to be Aaron Rodgers' last year in a Green Bay uniform. But I think... The fact that they probably know that puts more into their into their mission to try to win for Rodgers, puts more into Rodgers' mission to try to win before he either rides off into the sunset or heads somewhere else. And so I think Green Bay finishes 14-3, wins the division, and that puts them at, uh, yeah, I actually had them as the one seed in the, in the NFC. NFC South. I know Drew Brees had an off year to finish his career, particularly in the latter half of the season. But I think especially with what the Saints have done budgetarily, they are going to get significantly worse. I think they go 5-12 and and finish with the worst record in the NFC South. I think Jameis Winston is a bit overrated. He's a bridge quarterback. He is not... A, he is not a, a franchise quarterback. Frankly, I think I, I think they might actually be better off with Tate. Uh, in terms of an actual pure quarterback, I think they actually they might actually uh, uh, more of a game manager, more of a secure quarterback who won't turn the ball over. I think they'd actually be better off with Taysom Hill. But I understand why they went with Hill, and that's because they're able to have that. They still have that gadget and have that unpredictability in the offense. But the, the Saints go to 5-12. and 12. Carolina Panthers. Sam Darnold does not have the experience Teddy Bridgewater does. But I think he has skill, and I think he probably has a better team around him at this point. As to whether he'd have a better coach in Matt Rule than he would have if the Jets had kept him with Robert Sala, I don't know. But the, the Panthers will be about the same. They'll get better over the next couple of years, I think. Uh, but I have them going 6-11 and and finishing third. The Atlanta Falcons at 8-9 and finished second in the NFC South. Matt Ryan without Julio Jones, but I almost... Which is, you know, terrible for him, but I also feel like it could be the way Matt Stafford played in his first year without Calvin Johnson. And that's that he was able to spread the ball around more, didn't have to rely on one person, didn't have to put so much pressure on one receiver. And Falcons, not a strong team, but I think have a strong enough offense to be decent this year. And lastly, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, even though they won the Super Bowl last year, will win the division for the first time since 2007. They'll go 11-6. and six. They will finish with the three seed. Brady will be able to manage the game just as he does, just as he had, has for the last probably 10 years since Randy Moss left New England. And the pass rush again is going to be frightening. That's, that's all there is to it. NFC East. I believe Jalen Hurts can actually be a very good starting quarterback, 
but the Eagles have mismanaged this situation with Hertz and Wentz and possibly trading for and then trading for Minshew and then the whole thing with Sudfeld and, and Doug Peterson in the final game and like almost clinging to Peterson and then firing Peterson. I, I don't think they know what they're doing. I kind of meant I mentioned that they may have honestly lucked into in some ways lucked into that Super Bowl because they have the so I think because of the 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 track record of the front office in particular in the last couple of years I say the Eagles finished last in the East at three and fourteen tied for the worst record with the Lions in the NFC Dallas Cowboys. Dak Prescott put a lot more strain on his shoulder in trying to recover from his leg injury. And though he can put up career numbers, the, the only thing they did on defense was, was get Micah Parsons. Now, Micah Parsons could be a game-changing player, but you can't carry a defense by yourself. And I think the Cowboys can only win so many games with such little defensive ability. So I have the Cowboys going 7-10. and 10. Now, the two teams that will finish at the top, atop the NFC East, I think are far and away the two most complete teams. Not, I don't, I wouldn't say either of those teams is the best offense in the division. I would probably say one of them is the best defense in the division. But I think they are far more complete teams than the Cowboys and the Eagles. And so I said Washington goes and finishes second in the division with an 8-9 and nine record. I, I think that unpredictability could hurt them at the quarterback position because I don't know if Ryan Fitzpatrick really could be a full-time guy for this team. As much as I really enjoy watching him, there's that kind of... There's a bit of a gunslinger energy which is not always a good thing. You need to manage the football, manage the game. So I don't know. I'm guessing Fitzpatrick's going to be their guy for the year. But then Taylor Heineke's also there. and I, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what happens. But great coaching, great defense, good skill players. I think they go 8-9. and nine. I think the quarterback position is going, is going to be the X factor for Washington. And the New York Giants... I, I surprised myself with this one. I actually had the Giants winning 11 games and going 11-6 and six to finish with what would still be the four seed. But going 11-6 and six for the year, Daniel Jones, I think, regressed a little bit early last year, but matured in the latter half of the year. The Giants made a run, and then they finished 6-10. and 10. That's obviously not great. They almost made a run at the division. In Joe Judge's first year as head coach, they improved, I think, by three games over the previous season. And they did that all without fans. There was not, there were no fan. A lot of teams had, you know, maybe 10,000 fans. MetLife Stadium had no fans last year. So that's something they made. They did a great, I think they did a pretty good job in the draft. At the second, secondary and that defense in general, I think, is very strong. They went out and got Kenny Galladay. They, they went out and got Tony from Florida, who was one of the that was one of the more underrated picks of the draft. They have a very deep receiving core. Offensive line is the concern. 
Once again, offensive line is the concern, but I think they have a couple of solid guys on there who can help shore it up. Uh, I'm going to go with the Giants at 11-6 and six to win the NFC East. Maybe a bit of a liberal estimate in terms of total wins, but I'll take the Giants to win the division. Lastly, the NFC West. One of the best divisions in football, I would argue. I have two teams finishing at 8-9 and nine to wrap up that division at 3-4. and four. I have the Cardinals finishing 4th and the 49ers finishing at 3rd. We don't know what exactly is going to happen between Jimmy Garoppolo and Trey Lance. Garoppolo, it looks like, will be the starter to begin the season. And again, Garoppolo, good game manager. I think he was... I, before he got hurt, I wouldn't have said... Before Garoppolo got hurt, I would not have said there was really a need to draft Trey Lance, but the Niners felt like they had one. It's it's one of They're one of the more complete teams, but I still have them going 8-9. and nine. Cardinals did not really improve their offensive line, I think, for one. They're not as complete a team as the Rams or even as Seattle. So I'm going to – there's still a little inexperience too, I would say. So it's a younger coach – Kyler Murray is only in his, I think, third year now. He's yet to make the playoffs. Cardinals go 8-9. and nine. In this order, it would be San Francisco, then Arizona, and the tiebreaker. Second in the division, I have the Rams going 11-6. I actually had them starting really hot. I think going like 8-0 or something. 7-0, 8-0. But kind of cooling down down the stretch. And finishing with a 5 seed. I am glad to see that Matt Stafford will finally have a real chance to compete with a great team around him. Aaron Donald returns. Sean McVay. I mean, it's it's a team that that should have high expectations this year. But I do have them finishing second in the division. I don't know what it is about Seattle this year in particular, but I have the Seahawks going 14-3 and and finishing with the second-best record in the NFC. Getting to the playoffs, we start with the wild card. AFC wild card. I have the number four Titans over the number five Ravens. They would meet again, and again they would meet in Nashville. This would be the third straight year they meet in the playoffs, and it would be the second straight year in Nashville. The road team has won each of the previous two matchups. I would take the Titans to, to win this one. Cleveland Browns, number three, hosting the number six Indianapolis Colts. Browns are a more complete team. I think I trust Baker Mayfield more with the ball than I do with Carson Wentz. Better run game. I don't know about Quentin Nelson. At, at this point, I say, but even in general, I'd say Cleveland has a better O-line, probably a better secondary, better all-around team. Number two, Kansas City against number seven, Denver. I take the Chiefs. No contest, really. Teddy Bridgewater's a good quarterback, but I, I don't. But really, no contest. Kansas City would probably win that one. NFC, LA Rams at the Giants, same amount of wins, but at MetLife, I'll take the Rams. I'm, I hear Rams, Giants, five versus four, and all I think of is Flipper Anderson with the overtime touchdown, and I think like ninety three, I want to say. So I, I, Matt Stafford finally wins a playoff game. 
and I think the Rams go into MetLife Stadium and win and march to the divisional round. Number three, Buccaneers. Number six, Vikings. Buccaneers are definitely a more complete team. As for actual passing ability, I don't know. I, Brady versus Cousins, I don't know. But I, as much as I like Mike Zimmer, I probably trust Bruce Arians a little more at this point. Probably a more, more explosive receiving core. And, and, and the pass rush is going to be, the pass rush is the big difference, of course, as it was last year in the Super Bowl. Number two, Seahawks. Number seven, Bears. I had the let's. I had the Bears only winning eight games in a seventeen-game season. I had the Packers winning four. I had the Packers, Seahawks winning fourteen in Seattle. I, I'd take the Seahawks for sure. Divisional round, AFC. Number two, Kansas City versus number three, Cleveland. Number four, Buff, number four, Tennessee at number one, Buffalo. Cleveland made some improvements, but I think Kansas City had the more significant improvements at O-line. So I I plus it'd be a fully, let's say hypothetically it'd be a fully healthy Mahomes for the entire game. So let's say Kansas City over Cleveland. I think that'll be a pretty close game though. Tennessee and Buffalo. Tennessee's a good team, but Buffalo is an offensive juggernaut. And they frighten they should frighten you plus a game in Buffalo with a full crowd for the playoffs for the first time since 19, God, 1990, probably since Jim Kelly played, actually. Because the Music City Miracle, they played in Nashville. So probably since Jim Kelly was at quarterback. Because remember, they had like 5,000 fans maybe last year at the height of the pandemic. What we're hoping it was the height of the pandemic. So a a full house in Buffalo is going to be a madhouse. NFC. Number two, Seahawks. Number three, Buccaneers. It's Almost the longest flight. Tom Brady has played one game in Seattle and lost. And of course, there is some history with Tom Brady and the Seahawks and Pete Carroll. And God, I don't know how they didn't hand off to Lynch. But Seattle at home with probably very few fans. Like like if Green Bay was in Seattle, or if maybe the Bears, maybe the Niners, Giants, Cowboys, there are probably a few... Maybe the Eagles. There are probably a few few fan bases that will really go and travel. But Tampa flying all the way out to Seattle, I, I don't think so. That place would be roaring. I'd take the Seahawks and Russell Wilson probably. Because I think Tampa's secondary is a bit overrated. I think they're a lot more carried by their front four. So if Wilson could get the ball out quickly, I'd take the Seahawks. Green Bay and the Rams, second year in a row, divisional round. The game would probably be closer because of Stafford. But honestly, I'd still take the Packers. I'd take the Packers to go to the NFC Championship game yet again. Number one versus number two. Number one versus number two. Buffalo versus Kansas City. Green Bay versus Seattle. I don't know what it is about the Buffalo Bills this year, but I I, I swear I, I'm going the I'm Bills are going to the Super Bowl. That's that's what I have. The I think home field might actually be the deciding factor in this one. If this game was in Kansas City, I'd probably take the Chiefs, but I'm taking Buffalo. And I think the same goes for Green Bay and Seattle. Based on home field advantage, I'd say the Seahawks are probably more likely to win just because of how loud Seattle is. Well, at home, I'd say more likely take Seattle. But Green Bay and Rodgers, the Seahawks have not fared well in Green Bay in the postseason. 
So that brings us to the Buffalo Bills and the Green Bay Packers. I don't know if this game is going to be a shootout, but I say it's going to be a little above average in terms of scoring. I go Bills 31, Packers 28, Super Bowl MVP Josh Allen. I, I don't know what it, I think this is finally the year for the Buffalo Bills. Take a break, come back, and we will talk about the NHL going back to the Olympics as well as a couple of big moves for the Montreal Canadiens. And we are back. Talk just for a second about NHL players returning to the Olympics after missing out in 2018. NHL is finally sending players back to the Olympics for 2022. They will also compete in 2026. This comes from the NHL's newest CBA that was agreed upon last year in 2020. About a two-week break for anyone who actually doesn't uh, play in the Olympics. So here are just some of the highlights. The NHL and NHL Players Association can opt out if the COVID situation worsens or if there are game cancellations, although I would assume those are mutually exclusive. The NHL wanted expanded media rights, so media rights as opposed to meteor rights, uh, but could not get them in part due to the change in networks from NBC to now ESPN and Turner. And the internet and the IHF and the International Olympic Committee will cover the expenses of the players, which they did not do in 2018. That is what in part led to the absence of NHL players. So that's that, that's the one thing that was probably the most important. Moving on here, one more thing before we wrap things up here, and that is Jesperi Kakaniemi. Jesperi Kakaniemi was given the offer sheet one year, $6.1 million by the Carolina Hurricanes. Montreal does not match it. So they do not retain his services, but they do get a first rounder and a third rounder by not matching the offer sheet. In addition, they also traded one of their first round picks in 2022. Now they have an extra. They traded that one away, as well as a second rounder in 2024 for Christian Dvorak. So in essence, they traded Kakaniemi and a 2024 second rounder for a third rounder next year and Christian Dvorak, which is not bad. They got a guy with a little more experience, perhaps some better stats. Carolina gets a little younger. They get a little more depth, and they get a higher draft pick. So not a bad deal for either side. Mark Bergevin, the Habs GM, said the team was trying to sign Kakaniemi to a bridge contract instead of a long-term deal which essentially forced them to make a quick decision on him, and that quick decision was, let's just let him walk, and we'll try to get Dvorak. In essence, this may have actually sped things up for Montreal just because they get a guy with a little more experience and they get a little more depth. So not bad for them. That does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your time, and we'll see you again next week here on Sports in the Waiting Room.